Hello, and welcome to the Hope Brooklyn Weekly Sermon Podcast. Hope Brooklyn is a community of faith in Brooklyn, New York, that believes wherever you are in your spiritual journey, there's room at the table. Thanks for listening, and enjoy this week's sermon. If you are here for the first time, my name's Russ. I'm one of the pastors here. Um, And you're joining us in the middle of a series called A Subversive Church. What we've been doing is we've been looking at Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, asking um, how Paul is attempting to reshape their mindsets. Uh, Basically, Paul is looking at their community and saying, hey, here's some ways that you look a little bit more like your society than you do like Jesus. And it's really apropos for us because we don't have to look too far to see in our own hearts and our own lives Um, areas that need to be challenged, mindsets that need to be questioned. Last week, we started in chapter 12, and we really just took a couple verses, verses one through three. Man, I'm gonna get dizzy from the spinning, guys. I can already tell. (laughs) Um, Yeah, exactly, seriously. Um, We took a couple verses, chapter, uh, chapter 12, verse one through three, and it was really a prologue about the Holy Spirit. It was a prologue. It was talking all about who's in charge, right? We said Paul ended it by saying, No one with the Holy Spirit can say Jesus curses someone else. And no one who has the Holy Spirit, you know if someone has the Holy Spirit by their confession, Jesus is Lord or Jesus is in charge. It's all about power. And so what I want to do is I want to finish chapter 12, which I don't know if anyone else picked up. We're in the upper room on Pentecost Sunday talking about the Holy Spirit. No one? No one finds that spooky? That is something else. Coincidence, as Nathan said, maybe, maybe not. We'll find out. Um, So if you have your Bibles, we do not have it on the screen. Or if you have your phones, you can pull it out, or you can just listen along. I'm kind of going to paraphrase a bit, and you'll see why in a second. So we're finishing chapter 12, verses 4 through verses 31. So what Paul writes. There are different kinds of gifts, but the same spirit. There are different kinds of service, but the same Lord. Different kinds of working, but the same God works all of them in all people. Now to each one, the manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good. To one there's given through the Spirit the message of wisdom, to another the message of knowledge by means of the same Spirit. He goes on listing these gifts. Some people are given faith by that Spirit. Some people are given healing by that spirit. Some people are given miraculous powers by that spirit. Some are given prophecy. Some are given distinguishing between different spirits. Some speaking in tongues. Others to the interpretation of tongues. But all these are the work and the gift of the same spirit. And he gives to each person as he determines. The body is a unit. Though it's made up of many parts, and though all its parts are many, they form one body. So it is with Christ. For we were all baptized by one spirit into one body. Whether Jews or Greeks, slave or free, we were given all the one spirit to drink. Now the body is not made up of one part, but of many. If the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, it would not for that reason cease to be part of the body. And if the ear should say, Because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body. It would not for this reason cease to be part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? The whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? But in fact, God has arranged the parts in the body, every one of them, just as he wanted them to be. 
If they were all one part, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts but one body. And then he goes on to say, uh, those parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And the parts we think are less honorable, we treat with special honor. And God has combined the members of the body and has given greater honor to the parts that lacked it, so that there should be no division in the body, but that its parts should have equal concern for each other. Now you are the body of Christ, and each one of you is a part of it. And in the church, God has appointed, first of all, apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then workers of miracles, those having gifts of healing, those able to help others, those with gifts of leadership, those speaking in different kinds of tongues, are all apostles, are all prophets, are all teachers, do all work miracles, do all have gifts of healing, do all speak in tongues, do all interpret? Rhetorically, he wants you to answer no, but eagerly desire the greater gifts. We join me in prayer. Lord, thank you for moving us out of our comfort. Thank you for stretching us. Thank you for not leaving us where we are. Thank you for wanting more for us than we want for ourselves. Thank you for wanting more for our relationship with you than we want for it. Keep prying our hands open. Keep teaching us the story that we're in, the world we're living in. Keep revealing to us who you are and what you're doing. And be gentle with us. You know we bruise easily. Lord, bless this time today and speak to your people. It's in your name. Amen. All right, so what's going on in this passage? What's going on? Quite simply, the Corinthians had experienced the Holy Spirit. They had an encounter with the Spirit of Jesus, and it had been manifested in different ways. Some were given prophetic words. Some were given words of knowledge, words of wisdom. Some were speaking in tongues. And if you've been with us for a while, what do the Corinthians do about it? They argue. <laughs> they begin to argue, oh, you were given tongues. I got prophecy. Prophetic word over here. We're better. Oh, you're given interpretation. No, no, we got leadership over here. Oh, this guy, they can only heal people. They can only heal people over there. Come on. They're arguing. They're arguing over what does this mean hierarchically? Who's better? Who's got more of the love of Jesus? And Paul so kindly goes, it's, it's one body. It's one Lord, one spirit. And as we know in our own bodies, it's, it's synergistic in its work. The eye can't say to the ear, I have no need for you. Of course you do. How will you hear then? The ear can't say to the nose, I have no need for you. Of course you do. How will you smell? Each is given the gift as the Lord has determined so that the body and not the individual parts give glory to God. As we read through this, and I know I paraphrased it, um, hopefully if you were here last week, this will um, reveal to you why the prologue was necessary. Why Paul had to start by saying, look, you have to understand that those who truly have the gift of the Holy Spirit, who truly have the Spirit of God dwelling in them, they're the ones who confess Jesus as Lord. They are the ones that confess Jesus as Lord. Because anywhere where you don't get that, anywhere where you're arguing over who's better 
or Jesus loves me more than he loves you. You're misunderstanding the fundamental aspect of God's work to create a world where all know that Jesus is Lord. And where a community makes that confession, the spirit moves. If we want to look at the history of the world, if we want to look anywhere, the history of the world are the various ways that humans have not made that confession that Jesus is in fact Lord of the universe. And we do that through spirituality. We do that through religion. We can even do that in churches. We can. We, we can probably look at our own past and see churches that throw Jesus' name around, that talk like they understand, but you can clearly see that they are not living in such a way that confesses that they're not in charge, that Jesus is in charge. Interestingly, when you look throughout the history of the church, um, we all have an, a, an account for the Holy Spirit. But like I said last week, it's the most mysterious part of God. The Holy Spirit is God's mojo, right? You get in God's presence, or you get in someone's presence that has like really solid mojo. What is mojo? I don't know. I just know when I'm in the presence of it. It does something to me. It affects me. When you get into the presence of God, the Spirit is that mojo which is affecting you, which is doing something to you. And, and, and you look at the, the history of the church, they've all had different accounts for the Holy Spirit. I've been really lucky because I've been part of um, faith traditions on sort of both ends of the spectrum. So I grew up in a Baptist church. Shout out to the Baptists. Love the Baptists. Um, which do awesome things. But one thing, their account of the Holy Spirit is pretty um, sparse. Pretty sparse. It's really about the Father and the Son. They have a view of the Holy Spirit which is called cessationist. And you can sort of see the root word, cessationist, to cease. That after this, the first church, after the first hundred years or so, the Holy Spirit stopped doing these types of things. He stopped uh, giving tongues or prophecy. He stopped healing bodies. He, he had to do that at first so that people would know that Jesus was raised from the dead. But then it stopped. It ceased. So I grew up in that for a bit. And then... I went all the way on the other end of the spectrum to the Pentecostals. Any Pentecostals? Yeah. Woo-hoo! Yeah. And the Pentecostals, um, I'm coming for you. No. I, I, the Pentecostals, and again, there's wide spectrum on any of this, on any identification, as we all know. Um, but the Pentecostal movement can be traced back to about 100 years ago uh, called the Azusa Street Revival um, in 1906 in Los Angeles, California, on Azusa Street. And really what, what happened was there's a group of people gathered to worship Jesus. And the Spirit descended. The Spirit started manifesting God's presence in really radical and strange ways. Strange ways. And that continued for a while. That continued. But what you see with certain branches of the Pentecostal movement is um, an attempt to say that when the Spirit moves, it'll always look like this. It'll always be accompanied by speaking in tongues, or it'll be accompanied by um, prophetic words, right? So here's the thing. On one end of the spectrum, we have a group saying that the Holy Spirit no longer moves. And on the other end of the spectrum, we have a group saying that the Holy Spirit moves like this. What do both have in common? They're saying, I'm in control. The Spirit will do it like this. I know that the Spirit doesn't work or the Spirit does work. Both are trying to control 
God. What Paul is saying, if you truly have the Holy Spirit, you say, I'm not in control. I don't know how Jesus is going to be manifested. I don't know what's going to happen. I know he's going to be proclaimed as Lord, but I don't know what that's going to look like. And as I was looking at this text, I realized that we don't need to talk about this text yet. (laughs) That we're not ready for it. I'm not ready for it. That in fact, you and I are still on last week's. That phrase, Jesus is in charge. That we haven't gotten to the bedrock of that phrase where our hearts can truly say, we don't even need to say it. It's just so deep there that Jesus is in charge. And so what I want to do today is I want to share a little story, my own personal journey, as a way of maybe um, being an example for all of us of what I think God is calling us to. So I shared recently that there was a conference that uh, our family of churches put on, Hope Church NYC. And uh, on the first night of the conference, a pastor spoke from England. Her name was Eleanor Mumford. And um, she told her story. And essentially her story is that she was a happy Christian pastor. Notice, she was a happy Christian pastor. But who would say, essentially, I'm in charge. Not Jesus. And then she contracted meningitis. And a group of her friends, but a little of the weird type, they said, hey, can we pray for you? And her first reaction was, no, I don't want that to happen. Why? Because she goes, here's what they're going to do. They're going to lay sweaty, swarmy hands on me. Swarmy is such a good word. <laughs> sweaty, swarmy hands on me. They're going to invade my personal space. They're going to speak in tongues. It's just going to be a God-awful time, she says. And she asks her husband, who's also a pastor, and her husband goes, let's just go get it over with. Like, let's just do it, Okay. So they go, and she goes, it was confirmed. Everything happened as I thought. They laid sweaty, swarmy hands on me. They invaded my personal space. They prayed in tongues. I was uncomfortable the entire evening. The only problem is, is I was cured of meningitis after that night. And she goes, now what do I do about that? And she goes on to narrate her story of essentially, even as a pastor, realizing that her heart was still not confessing that Jesus is in charge. And to step into that space, to step into that reality where every aspect of your life is saying, I don't know what's going to happen, but I know that I'm submitting myself to Christ. It's scary. And so the end of the, end of the talk, she says there, she goes, I feel like there's usually two types of people in the room. One, those who Maybe I've never experienced anything like this, and it's very scary. She goes, I totally get it. But another type, and this was for me, those who have encountered the Spirit, those who have had radical moments when I knew that Jesus was in charge, when I was not in charge, that I was giving it all up for him, but then I lost my nerve. She goes, you lost your nerve, and that was definitely me. You know, it's interesting, the, the things in our lives that can reveal to us what our hearts truly worship, what our hearts truly believe. For me, you know what revealed to me um, that I still thought I was in charge? Planting this church. And planting this church over the last year and a half, God made very clear to me that I still thought that I was in charge. 
it's pretty lonely being a pastor, just FYI. It's really lonely. And the reason why is because, as we talked about, <clears throat> my job, and I love it, is to tell you all the time, your God adores you, adores you, and it's true. But sometimes we need to hear that too. <laughs> but I guess people assume, and I get it, since you're the pastor, I know that already. No, I'm still a human. <laughs> I need to hear that. And so over the last year and a half, it was a tremendously lonely affair in many times, in many places for Anna and myself. It was tremendous um, anxiety. I went to bed many nights, like with just fists, stomach clenched, um, having reoccurring dreams, anxiety dreams. And so as this is happening and as people are discovering life, I'm realizing this, this isn't the right life for me. What's going on here? And it got to the, the end, uh, about summer, fall of last year. Anna and I were fighting over stupid things. You always know something's up when you're fighting over stupid things. I have no point. And we're just like, what is happening? And God basically revealed to me, you think you're in charge. You think you're in charge. And it dawned on me that it hadn't. Where I actually believed that this, if Hope Brooklyn succeeded or failed, it was my doing or my fault. And yeah, we're praying to God and we're asking him to bless, but I truly didn't believe in my heart of hearts that God is the one doing this. I thought that it had to do with my ability or capacity or lack thereof. And God basically, I had to get to the end of myself, the end of my anxiety, the end of my fear, and just be like, I'm done. I got nothing left. I got nothing, God. And at that point, he was like, ah, perfect. Perfect. That's where you should have been. That's where you were the entire time, though you didn't know it. And so the end of last year, Anna and I and, and Nathan and Steph and some other leaders, we just started praying a lot more. I realized that I didn't have it. I didn't have enough strength. I didn't have enough capacity. So we just started praying. Started praying for groundswell. We started praying for God to move on your hearts. We just started praying that if this is going to become a community that lasts where Jesus is proclaimed, it's got to come, come from his work, where he is truly in charge, where, where he's doing the work and no one can claim credit for it, and no one can claim blame for it either. It's all on him. So that was last year. Fast forward. So then as we started praying that, actually, we started seeing little signs. And I know many of you, because we've had conversations about it, God started doing little gratuitous things, gratuitous acts of kindness, revelation of his presence, of his love, things where you're like, you didn't need to do that, God. Like, you don't need to step into that, but he did. And it was so real, and it was so rich. And that started encouraging our hearts even more, and anxiety started dissipating. And this actually became fun in a way that it hadn't been sometimes. Like I actually, confession, there have been some Sundays where I have not looked forward to coming to church. There have been some Sundays. Why? And it's not, it has nothing to do with your beautiful faces and your beautiful spirits. It has everything to do with me. It has everything to do with my fear and my anxiety. But it started becoming fun again. And I started praying more. It's like, Lord, you do this. We need you. You do this. Fast forward to the conference. Eleanor Mumford is preaching. She says there's two types. I know exactly who I am. I know I need to absolutely surrender it all. So I decide to pray a childish prayer. I decide to pray 
that Jesus would send someone to tell me that he loves me? Simple prayer. But over the course of this conference, Lord, would you just send someone to tell me that you love me? The last day of the conference, we're worshiping. Anna's there filming as well. We're worshiping. And as we're worshiping, I have no other words to say than just the Holy Spirit just overcame me. I was convulsed with love in a way that, you know those moments when you're in extreme grief or extreme joy, where you're like, your stomach doesn't move, you can't even take a breath? It was that. It was just convulsed with love and delight of God just saying, I choose you, I see you, I know you. And in that moment as well, God took me back in my consciousness to the very first time this had happened. And the very first time that I sort of encountered the Spirit, I was 16 years old. Uh, I had just had a major operation, um, and I was in the hospital room and felt pretty blue, felt pretty low. All my friends were playing summer sports and working jobs and going to parties, and I had a head the size of a basketball, and I was in extreme pain, and I was going to be just stuck up there the whole summer. And one time I, I, I was in the room, and there's no one else in the room with me. My parents weren't there for some reason. And I was just overcome with emotion. I said, you know, Jesus, you promised you would always be there for me. Where are you? And in that moment, the Holy Spirit just sort of descended. Same thing. And I just convulsed with love, and I wept, and I wept. And God says, I see you. I choose you. I know you at my most unlovely, at my most ugly, my lowest point where I felt like no one else in the world saw me or would choose me. God's like, I am here with you. I choose you. So as we're worshiping during the conference, that moment when I was 16 came back into my, into my psyche. And it was such a powerful experience. Well, the worshiping ends. And as, um, as Anna and I are sitting down, we both receive a text from a friend who was at the conference. And I won't go into the fullness of the text, but he basically he goes, I just feel like God's leading me to share with you Isaiah 35 which the first line is, the wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. It shall blossom abundantly, which was like water to the wilderness because Anna and I over this last course, this last season had felt like it was dry land. And I had prayed, God, will you just send someone to tell me you love me? And he did. Sent someone out of the blue to say, hey, the wilderness is going to give birth to flowers and to water again. And just when you think that's enough, like I've already encountered you, Lord, all right, that's good. That's all I can handle. My, my receptacle's full of water. I'm good for the day, okay? No. So then the guy comes up to preach, and he preaches on the story of Gideon. Um, and you might not be familiar with the story. It's an older story um, during the period of the judges in Israel. And the way the story goes is Israel is being subdued by a foreign oppressor, and God comes to Gideon who's from the smallest family and the smallest tribe. And he says, Gideon, I am with you. I choose you. Go and lead my people to victory. Go throw off the oppressor. And I'll sort of fast forward the story. Gideon a couple times tries to say, no, you got the wrong guy. Don't do this. But finally, he relents and he says, okay, we'll go. So he gathers the armies of Israel, 32,000 people. He gathers the armies of Israel and they march out to battle. And right before, they're, they're, as they're marching out to battle, right before uh, the, the battle's to begin, God says to Gideon, Gideon, stop. You have too many people. 
I can't save you. Now, I'm sitting there thinking, we're about to fight a war against an army with thousands and thousands of people. And God goes, no, 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 I can't save you. And what's the reason I can't save you? You have too much. You have too many people. You'll be tempted to believe, Gideon, that after you win this war, that you did it, your arm did it, and not me. So he starts whittling it down. He whittles 32,000 down to 22,000. They're already like outnumbered by the other people. And then they're getting closer, and then God goes, Gideon, stop again. I can't save you. You have too much right now. Your hands are too tight. You think you're in charge. You'll be tempted to believe that you won the battle and not me. And so he whittles it down further until Gideon is left with 300 men. Just for you math people or for you non-math people in the room, started with 32,000, now has 300. I think that's 1%. 1% of the original army is who Gideon leads out to fight an army of thousands. And God goes, now, now I can save you. Now I can save you. And they win. They win the battle. And God is the one who saved Israel. Now here's why this is important. Because as the guy is preaching, he's talking to a room full of pastors and church planters. Oh, excuse me. Pastors and church planters. And essentially he's saying to them, look, I, speaking like God, I have to snatch you back to the moment when you had nothing. I have to snatch you back to the moment when you had no people, no money, no space. I have to snatch you back to when all you had was the word of the Lord saying to you, I choose you, I see you, I am with you. Go. And friends, I had just encountered the spirit of Jesus convulsing me, loving me. And what did he do? He snatched me back to when I was a 16-year-old boy, when I was cooped up in a hospital bed with nothing, nothing. I felt lower than nothing. And God's saying, I see you, I love you, I choose you. I have to snatch you back. And I'm wondering if the word for many of us in here, in this space, when you're asking, where is God? Where is Jesus in this relationship? Where is Jesus in this job? Why does my heart feel dry and angry and anxious and bitter? I wonder if the word is the same as it was to Gideon. You have too much. I can't save you with this much. You still think you're in charge. You'll be tempted to believe that you saved yourself and I didn't save you. So I've got to snatch you back to that point where you had nothing, where you felt at your lowest, where you felt at your most unlovable, and all you had was the voice of your creator shining on you, saying, I see you, I choose you, I'm for you. So here's the catch-22 of the whole situation. God could have saved Israel without Gideon, but he didn't. He still used Gideon. He still used Gideon. Over the last year, when people have been asking me, how is Hope Brooklyn doing? My answer has always been, we have really good bones. Really good bones. We have a community full of amazing people, of great, great leaders and, and uh, eager hearts and like so 
warm and invitational. We have great structures in place that welcome people in. Like, we have really good bones for a one-year-old church plant. But a couple weeks back, Nathan and I were at a training, and um, the, the training was on Ezekiel 37. And Ezekiel 37 tells this story of the prophet Ezekiel. And God takes the prophet Ezekiel to a valley, a valley full of dry bones. Everywhere, as far as you can see, dry bones. And we know, Ezekiel knows, that these are the bones of his kinsmen. These are the bones of fellow Israelites. And at the time this is happening, Israel is in exile. They do not have their land. Um, they, they don't have the temple. They're in exile. They are at their lowest. And God asks Ezekiel in that valley, full of dry bones of his family, he goes, son of man, can these bones live? What a sadistic question. What a terrible question. Son of man, look at the bones of your life. Can they live? And Ezekiel, he goes, oh Lord, only you know. He can't say yes because he doesn't believe right now. And he can't say no because he also believes enough. So he goes, oh Lord, I don't know, only you know. And then God goes, here's what I want you to do. I want you to prophesy to the bones. I want you to prophesy to the bones that they will live. Can you imagine that, friends? Can you imagine being at your lowest, your most faithless, your most broken, angry, and God saying, now I want you to prophesy to that dead place in your life. I want you to prophesy to that addiction. I want you to prophesy to that situation where you've lost all faith, where you're pretty sure that it's not going to happen, it's not real. I want you to prophesy to it and say it's going to live. And so Ezekiel does. He starts prophesying. And as he prophesies, the bones start rattling and they start coming back to life, which for you doctors in the room, you know how disturbing of an image that is. And then like tissue comes over and, and sinews and flesh. It really describes it. The bones start rattling, coming back to life. But then as we're at this training, this guy points out, and we had never seen it. The bones aren't a full human being yet. There's a second step. There's a second step where God says to Ezekiel, now what I want you to do is I want you to prophesy to the breath. I want you to prophesy to the breath, which of course for a Jewish reader recalls back to uh, creation where God creates Adam and Eve, he forms them from the dust, but they're not a living creature yet. They're just a formed being. And then God breathes the, breathes the breath of life into them and they come alive. They become a living creature. It's two steps in the process. First, the bones start coming back to life, even as you're terrified and you're afraid and God does it through you. But then you have to prophesy to the breath, to the spirit. And so that changed everything. When people ask, how's Hope Brooklyn? We've got great bones, but I'm prophesying to the breath right now. I'm prophesying to the spirit to come upon us, to restore our faith. I know many of you are struggling with faith. I'm prophesying for restored faith. I'm prophesying for favor. I'm prophesying for groundswell, for new faith among many of us here. And I perhaps, if you would join me into this, in this prayer, Maybe we hear the same thing of God, of why don't we see God? We have too much. He can't save us with this much.
Guys, this is the day of Pentecost. 2,000 years ago, Jesus' first disciples, they watched as the resurrected Jesus appeared to them and were totally confused, as Jay said, totally dumbfounded, really wondering what's going on. And then he revealed himself for 40 days. And then he says to them, he goes, I have to go away. Because if I don't go away, it's not good for you. I need to go away. What you're thinking, Jesus, why do you have to go away? Like, we just need to stay in your presence. He goes, no, no, no. When I go away, then I'll send to you the Spirit. I'll send to you the Advocate, the Comforter. And when you are full of the Spirit, you'll do, do even greater things than I. And so on the day of Pentecost, the disciples, after they'd seen him ascend, 10 days later, they're in the upper room. Maybe it was a school cafeteria. And they were praying and worshiping together for 10 days. They prayed and they worshiped, waiting for the gift that Jesus said he was going to give them. And then the Spirit came upon them like tongues of fire and rested on them. And they were full of um, worship and adoration of God, declaring it in other languages that they didn't know. And at that time, because it was a Jewish festival, there were Jews from all across the empire who did speak those languages, who were present in Jerusalem. And so they heard the wonders of Jesus being declared in their own language. Friends, what I want to do today, and I invite you to, to rise, stand up with me, and have the band come back. I want to take some time, since we're already uncomfortable enough and vulnerable enough, I want to take some time to worship. I want to take some time to perhaps open our hands a bit more and ask Jesus, where do I still think I'm in charge? Where do I still think that I'm in charge? Because right there, God is saying, I can't save you. You have too much. I can't save you. You have too much. And hearkening back to our family 2,000 years ago, we joined those, we joined the tradition of those who gather to say, we're not in charge. That's the beauty of this story. That's the beauty of this world is we're not in charge. Jesus is in charge and he can have every single part of me. And friends, as someone who's experienced a heck of a year and experienced the kindness of God, let it go. Whatever you're holding on to, let it go. It's not worth it. And life, even uncertain life with him, is far richer, far better than anything else we're holding on to right now. So we're going to take some time to worship. And you'll notice um, that there are a couple people behind the chairs. That's our prayer team. Those are people who have been following God for a while, who are not experts, but who love the Lord. And they would love, as we're worshiping, if God brings something to your heart, to your mind, to go to them to pray with them. They're all around the circle, so you can just sort of sneak out behind the, uh, the columns or whatever. And to pray with them, and to confess, and to repent, and to allow Jesus to fill you up again. So pray with me. 
Lord Jesus, thank you for not giving up on us. Thank you for not giving up on us. Even when we don't realize that we haven't fully given ourselves to you, you don't give up on us. And so I pray in this moment, Holy Spirit, that you would just dance in this room. That you would speak to people. That you would point out where in their life, that even right now it would come to them, where in their life that they're holding too tightly, where they actually think they're in charge and you're asking them to lay it down. You're asking them as scary and as painful as it feels that right there to let it go, to let it go and fall into your arms. So we worship you, Lord. Speak to us right now. Amen. Thanks again for tuning in to this week's sermon. To find out more about the mission and ministry of Hope Brooklyn, details about Sunday worship and brunch, to subscribe to our other podcasts, and lots more, visit us online at www.hopebrooklyn.org.